Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Market Show. I'm Ian Smith, the Deputy Companies Editor of the IC. Joining me in the studio are Bradley Gerrard, our News Editor. How are you doing, Bradley? Yeah, good, thank you. Apart from it's a bit chilly in the studio today, so... And horrible weather outside. Yeah. Uh, also in the studio we have Stephen Wilmot, our Companies Editor. How are you doing, Stephen? Very well, Ian. And in, over in the uh, control room we have Daniel Liberto, our uh, Specialist Writer. How are you doing, Daniel? Fantastic, thanks. Good. Just back from lunch. Was it good? Excellent, yeah. <laughs> Ate very well. <laughs> Ate very well. And uh, we also have Dominic Toms on the controls. Hi, Dom. How are you doing? Doing well. If a reader was going to ask me how you used to sum up this uh, podcast, what is this podcast going to be all about, I would use that classic political quote, is the economy stupid? And I suppose that's where we'll start. Bradley, we've had some Q3 economic data concerning the UK. Um, what are we seeing? Yeah, it was um, a, a bit of a weaker quarter than expected. Services, production and agriculture were kind of areas that grew. But a big um, detractor was uh, construction, where output fell 2.2%. Now, construction's only 6% of the economy, so well below the sort of 75% the services uh, makes up. But I suppose the fact that construction was so weak is uh, potentially an issue, um, especially maybe for um, you know uh, our audience, given that actually the construction sector plays into things like house builders and that sort of thing, which have been very popular, have done very well. It, it maybe just points to mm. maybe a little bit of softening in that sector, not sort of a, an outright sort of correction or anything. But it's probably worth uh, investors sort of noting the uh, the trends in construction, given the the sectors that are involved in it have been so popular for investors. Yeah, what it does do is perfectly set up our podcast because we're going to be talking about the UK's unbalanced uh, recovery. Stephen's written the cover feature uh, this week, but we'll come on to that in a, in a little bit. I suppose if we're going to talk about one sector that's uh, stumbling, perhaps, Daniel, you've written about the home improvement uh, sector. We've had trading statements from Travis Perkins and SIG. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so there were um, two uh, week trading statements that came out from those two on the same day, actually, showing that basically in the third quarter over the summer, there was a lull in um, home improvement activity. And that kind of sparked a, a bit of a reaction. So some of the other DIY specialists, their shares also got hit. It's also kind of sparked wider fears about the housing market in general, really. People tend to do up their properties uh, before a sell and after a purchase so there's that kind of you know is activity here does that kind of tell us something more about you know where the uh, housing market recovery is heading and also SIG has some kind of European operations doesn't it as well what's the yeah. picture we're seeing outside of the UK I mean they did complain that the UK operations were struggling but it was most of the problems were coming from um, France uh, it seems that maybe the consumer confidence over there has dried up and even though they've been kind of implementing a lot of self-help measures Profits have, have really taken kind of a bit of a pounding, really. And, um, you know, it's kind of quite worrying because even though there was that lull, they, they didn't give any indication that things were improving. So, you know, shares have really been in free fall. They fell 21% uh, when the trading statement came out and they keep on falling. So, yeah, some concerns out there. And you also mentioned Alamask just around that off. You know, tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so that was a, a slightly different issue. Um, there was an AGM statement basically saying that business was, was going well, but they mentioned some uh, labour shortages in the in the UK roofing business. As a consequence, shares fell 14%. But I spoke with uh, management there, and it seems that maybe markets have maybe overreacted a little. That issue uh, appears to be a short-term one, and they're confident that they can kind of pick up, that business is picking up, and that that sh- uh, roofing issue will... Um, will go away but yeah again that raises an issue about this kind of labor shortage uh, concern um and you know and that could maybe spread and, and impact other companies as well you've got to have someone to actually put the roof on right 
Um, okay, so let's talk about another kind of big news story this week, which was data breaches at major UK companies. Leading the news, obviously, Talk Talk. Uh, Bradley, t- take us through the basics there. What's going on? Um, yeah, as you say, um, Talk Talk I think was actually hit a little while ago as well. Actually, at the time of the Dixon Carphone um, hack as well. So it's not great news and. Um, Shares have been on a bit of a roller coaster ride, to say the least. I mean, on Friday last week, they were at about 258p. They hit a low of 226 on Monday, reached a high of 262 on Tuesday, and now they're about 242. <laughs> so it really has been up and down, up and down. The initial news of this sort of data breach obviously scared investors, and I think shares went down about 16%. And then somebody was arrested, a potential perpetrator, um, I think a 15-year-old in Northern Ireland or something. Shares bounced them. Um, but I think I guess what, what what's important here is that investors kind of need to hear from Talk Talk, and I'm sure the company will be keen to do this quite soon. It'll be to actually tell investors what they're going to do to stop this happening again in the future. Because it's all very well saying that the breach um, wasn't that material, and the the data that was um, you know recovered by the hackers was not going to sort of lead to you know people's bank accounts being empty and that sort of thing. But we are hearing more and more of these occurrences, right? UK companies, and we've written in the past about cyber security and, and the companies that are involved in trying to uh, defend businesses against these kind of attacks but yeah I mean there, there was another one that's come through as well haven't we the optimal payments yeah I mean just um, today it's uh, released a statement on the stock market saying that um, there were there have been breaches um, and these somebody, go back a little bit huh? yeah I mean some of these come forward and said basically that they've told the company they've got data which relates to um, 2011 2012 I believe it's from um, sort of subsidiaries of optimal payments that it's um, bought through acquisition I think but yeah, it's again, even if you've bought a company and there's a data breach there, I mean, it just shows that even if you know, you've got to have your own house in order, but you've got to make sure the house of, well, the house you're buying is in order as well, yeah. because you can buy companies and there can be issues there. And yeah, I guess the key thing is that companies are going to have to tell investors kind of what they're doing, how they're defending themselves. And I mean, like you say, maybe this is a chance to look at um, companies involved in data security. I mean, Theron, who wrote the piece in the magazine this week, notes that BAE Systems, I think, which has been hired by TalkTalk to investigate the hack. So maybe there's a play there. And Theron names a few others in the um, article as well, including Acumuli, as well as GB Group and a few others. So it could be a big opportunity for companies that specialise in sort of data security. I suppose the big the bigger pitch for TalkTalk is the impact on the brand, right? If people see TalkTalk as a less reliable, less secure provider than others yeah, uh, over the longer term, which is harder to tell. Yeah, and stories like this, obviously, with Twitter and things nowadays, they, they travel like wildfire. And in a way, it almost doesn't matter what the actual impact is. The, the fact that it's happened is, is enough, really, mm. to potentially turn people off. I mean, I guess there's the... Um, the safety net, I suppose. I mean, I don't know, like, don't know what your phone contract's like, but I think it might be pretty difficult to get out of um, <laughs> at a moment's notice. You know, you're locked in for a, you know, a year or two years, sort of thing. So there's an element of the customer base has to be a bit sticky, unless it probably wants to pay up the remainder of its contract. But it could, arguably, I suppose, put new um, customers off going to the to the company. And um, there's a YouGov tool that has. Um, perhaps not surprisingly found um, a few negative uh, a bit of negative sentiment towards the brand um, this week so okay we'll see how that one plays out what we've also had this week is uh, q3 earnings figures from the some of the major uh, listed companies i've covered the banks lloyds and barclays had um, less than spectacular figures but Stephen, we've also looked at bp and shell uh, yes. What's going on there well the the common theme that you see um, in these two uh, q3 results was that um, the executive teams are trying to convince investors that 
um, the companies can fund both their dividends and their investment programs with oil at $60 a barrel, um, which is not where it is na- now. Brent is at some, you know, 48, 49, something like that. Um, but it, you know, previously Ben van Burden at Shell, for example, has, has repeatedly said, um, you know, that that the business will be fine at $70 a barrel. Um, and uh, in particular, the the BG takeover will be, you know, will make sense at $70 a barrel, which has been naturally kind of concerning investors as, you know, it seemed increasingly backward looking as, as oil remains below $50 a barrel. So um, both of, you know, Ben van Burden said today in the, tr- the, the trading statement that um, that over the past year, um, he, what he said was actually quite pre- specific. Um, so let's, let me get it right. So he said over the past year, the the the, the company's dividends and its invest- net investment were covered by the average oil price, which was over the past year sixty dollars a barrel. Of course, that reflects the fact that it's been it was falling from a a much higher level. Um, so that doesn't necessarily suggest that going forward um well no that suggests that 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 if 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 there is a, a long term average at 60 dollars a barrel they'll they'll be fine the dividend won't be cut this has obviously been the, the chief worry of investors um in shell so they're trying to offer as much reassurance as they can while still yeah. being reasonably um, um well i mean it, yeah what that doesn't mean is that shell can um afford its dividends and net investment at the current share, at the current oil price um so what we've seen is the the, ma- the oil majors scaling back on their some of their spend, right? In, well, they've yeah, they, they, yeah, I mean they've, they've been sca- yeah. I mean actually, Mark's Mark Robinson wrote the piece on BP um, in this week's issue, and is, is he makes the point, which is um, that um, that actually BP there was a silver lining um, in the um, Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, and that it meant that BP was scaling back was selling off assets to try and fund these liabilities in the US at a time when the oil price was much higher. So actually it got some pretty good prices. Right. Um, and so the other companies, including Shell, which um, made the very unusual decision not just to kind of um, can some very speculative programs that hadn't yet started, but it, it actually halted production in the Canadian oil sands where it had, it had started building kind of houses for staff and so forth that actually you know got there and got the pickaxes out and you know started work and it it sort of cooled that off so that's that's really quite unusual and it just shows how aggressive oil companies are are getting and cutting back their um development plans um but yeah that i mean that oil companies obviously need to balance these cutbacks against the need to sustain their production um and uh and, and that so at the moment, investors are very much focused on their dividends and whether um, they'll be covered by um, by operating cash flow. Um, but um, at another point in the cycle, they might be much more interested in growth. And I suppose the, the difficulty is that they need to not cut back so much that they won't be able to actually sustain their production you know, in a few years' time. So, yeah, it's a tricky time for all companies. Um, but... Um, I suppose the takeaway of this week is that executives need to be getting more realistic mm. about um, about you know oil being lower for longer. 
Yeah, and you can read uh, Mark's piece in the current uh, this week's magazine, uh, and you can read him on Shell um, it, online mm. uh, shortly. Mm. Um, okay, well, another kind of a big share price faller, even bigger this week. Well, there's a couple, uh, Megat and Kemring. Let's talk about UK defence sector, another kind of sector where some people were hoping for a rec- recovery, but that's uh, now proving to be restrained at best. Uh, Daniel, can I bring you back in there? You know, w- what's been going on this week? That's right. There was a lot of noise that defence spending is picking up uh, both here and in the US uh, key markets. But um, two very kind of concerning uh, trading updates uh, came out. Um, firstly, from Kemring. Um, basically, um, they announced that a key contract to provide ammunition to the Middle East had been delayed. And um, that was particularly damaging because um, recently they, um, there was a big contract with the U.S. Um, Army which was cancelled. So they were kind of hoping for that contract to kind of fill in for that. Uh, and then it kind of was revealed that they were going to go to the uh, market for um, a 90 million rights issue um, because basically the debt situation is becoming unmanageable. Uh, and the, the chief executive there has basically just said, you know, we're struggling to manage this debt. Um, and that's restricting... Um, the our ability to kind of focus on on growth and operation improvement um and shares fell 23 percent um on that and to be honest uh, it's not looking good at the moment there and then but you're more you're more positive on megat than you are on Cameron yeah Hitch. well megat um came out um a day after with a, a profit warning as well um and yeah i mean it's uh it's going to be interesting to see how things play out there i'm still positive at the moment but, um, you know, there was a, the kind of top line growth was weak um, across energy and military aviation markets, which wasn't necessarily surprising. But what is really concerning is just the kind of the lack of uh, aftermarket work, which is, you know, the real lucrative area for Megat. Um, and it seems that kind of they were making a lot of margin on kind of parts for older planes um, where there's kind of less, less of the kind of materials out there. So, so the companies kind of pay a premium for that. And as the kind of market's changing, um, there's less demand for that now. There's more of a focus on environmentally friendly planes and, and mm-hmm. technology's changing. And um, though I've got more confidence in Megat could turn it around, it is something that we definitely need to keep tabs on here because um, that was one of the main reasons for tipping it was the kind of this aftermarket demand. And uh, that's drying up at the moment and hopefully it will turn around. And as in the home improvement sector, these two bad trading updates weighed mm. more widely on the sector. Yeah, that's right. There was uh, a couple of other companies that got hit. Um, Howden Joinery, Kingfisher, Grafton mm. um, in particular. And in, in terms of defence um, sector, after those uh, two trading uh, statements came out, uh, I also noticed that there was um, shares in a couple of the other companies were impacted, such as uh, I think it was Senior, uh, Ultra Electronics and Cobham. Mm. Um, so, yeah, definitely, I think... You know, these are very sensitive time for markets, and I think you know people are very kind of edgy, and you, you see these kind of updates coming out, and you're thinking, you know, who else is going to be impacted by this? And you know, it's it's natural to, you know, for there to be a reaction, uh, especially after this kind of this kind of renewed optimism that um, defence spending was going up, and you know, there there is every sign that's going to happen, but clearly it hasn't filtered through to these companies mm-hmm. yet, and there are some concerns. And not not good news for very important. 
sector for the UK economy, uh, which, which brings us on to the wider feature this week. Obviously, we've talked about construction, we've talked about um, defence there. Uh, Stephen, you start your feature talking about manufacturing um, and the, the, the relatively small size of the UK's manufacturing sector compared to its overseas uh, overseas economies. Um, take us through this. Why, why is this the case and why should we be worried about it? Yeah, well, this is obviously a topical subject because of the um, the steel industry problems that we've had. Um, tens of thousands of jobs being lost in that industry. Yeah, well, it's not not quite tens of thousands yet. But there are only thirty thousand jobs left in the industry, apparently. Um, but the um, the you know yeah, but we've had sort of three to four thousand jobs being put at risk, and um, obviously that's galvanised the media attention. Um, I mean, this is, it's not particularly surprising um, that the steel sector in the UK has been in decline for, for decades. Um, but um, it, it, it does show how bad we are at protecting our manufacturing sector, um, including compared to, to European um, peers and, and the US, um, which still has a decent manufacturing, decently sized manufacturing sector. Um, and I, I guess that's the subject to this um, cover feature. I mean, wh- why why that's the case and whether it matters. Um, and you know, we've we've been talking about a lot of bad news, haven't we? <laughs> um, bad news from the oil majors. Bad news from the um, uh, the aerospace uh, or defence sector. Um, also, manufacturers who export. Um, and but you know, th- there there have been a couple of good news snippets. For example, Next's results, and that's a good good you know good. Um, little microcosm of this feature actually is sort of you know the the consumer economy is being doing well um, but that that that's also storing up problems notably big current account deficits um, and very low savings ratio um, which we have in the UK and I so I, I'm sort of looking at to what extent those those are problems and, mm-hmm. and whether investors should be worried about them um, I mean to get back to your original question you know why why is why has Britain got some, some basically 10% of yeah, well estimates vary but about 10% of um, the UK economy is manufacturing compared to over well over 20% in Germany I mean Germany is always the obvious comparator com- company because it's actually s- country because it's actually skewed in the opposite direction mm-hmm. they've got a very undeveloped um, consumer services sector but a very overdeveloped manufacturing sector um, and George Osborne, as you've written about, has talked about previously about the march of the makers yeah, trying and, to transform and, the UK uh, economy. Exactly, and the interesting thing is that there has actually been some political momentum behind the idea that we should foster more of a manufacturing sector, which is in you know stark contrast to the last time the Conservatives were in government mm. in the you know eighties and nineties. Um, so that there has been something of a return to the idea that we should have an industrial strategy. But you've talked about some of the hurdles that are in the way of that. We don't have enough infrastructure, yeah. the infrastructure yeah, there so to create that. Yeah, the, there are lots of different problems, but yeah, people talk about lack of skills, lack of infrastructure. Um, uh, access, but a key one is access to finance. And I think mm. it's quite an interesting one from a from you know, private investor's point of view is that Britain has a very developed equity market. Um, it's well over 100% of GDP is the value of the you know the all share. Um, whereas in Germany, it's something like forty or fifty percent of GDP. They're basically, a lot of their economy is not um, equitized. That's not really the w- a word, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> and w- whereas there, they've got very developed banking, um, sort of, lo- and actually subsidized state banking sector, which hands out loans to sort of small and medium-sized businesses. And the thing about 
that debt finances, it does lend itself to um, long-term business creation because owners can basically retain control, whereas if they have to sell out to another equity owner, they you know, rapidly lose interest. And so this is, I mean, people often talk about this in the tech industry, right, that um, you, you know, we don't have any tech giants in Britain because everyone always sells out off, you know, they're all, they're too, they're too focused on the exit, whereas mm. you need a kind of messianic figure like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs who sort of pretends that their company isn't really a company at all and it's about, you know, um, taking over the world rather than making any money and eventually then that, you know, so they, they seem, le- I mean, <coughs> they seem less focused on that exit liquidity moment as entrepreneurs t- talk about um, in, in in some other countries. Um, so that access to finance issue, I think, is a, perhaps the most crucial one and that stops the development of um, smaller manufacturing businesses. Um, but anyway, oh yeah, sorry, t- we, we digress slightly. But I mean, the, <coughs> the, the good news is, as you said, the, the con- consumer recovery. But this is patchy. Yeah, the, um, the, exactly. Yeah, the, the good news is that we have had a economic recovery, obviously, but like previous um, economic um, booms in the UK, it's been built on on consu- on consumption um, and and debt. And although debt hasn't picked up to a massive extent yet, um, basically savings jumped in the in the recession, and those that savings ratio has been coming down, uh, so that now households are neither saving nor borrowing. Um, so we haven't got to the point where, where we're borrowing, but unless wage growth picks up quite strongly, we won't be able to sustain the kind of consumption growth we've been seeing without people getting into debt. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the the point at which we're at at the moment. Uh, luckily, consumption sorry wage growth has picked up. That's largely the result of very low inflation, but also wage settlements have been better over the past um, year or so. I mean, we have seen an uptick in certain areas of lending around, uh, borrowing around, buying cars and, and, yeah. and point of sale, oh, absolutely. retail I mean, finance. You've, you've written a, a very eloquently about this. And yeah, no, actually, that's a, a, a very good point. But is that not across the board? Is that just certain? Yeah, yeah I mean, in aggregate, um, the households are neither borrowing or, nor, nor saving. Um, and But yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting ways of playing this theme on the stock market, uh, as we've talked about a lot, is um, is through um, lenders because um, th- this kind of increasing consumer confidence is feeding into strong mortgage approval figures and um, and as you say, unsecured lending, mm-hmm. um, you know, motor finance and so forth, and you know, a number of your tips, close brothers and so forth, have fed into that. Um, yeah, I suppose we've we've seen small businesses borrowing as well. That's that that's been stronger. Uh, but w- what do you think about the, uh, the potential impact of rising rates on this kind of consumer recovery? Well, is that a worry? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's 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 a worry. I mean, it's obviously been a worry for ages, and it hasn't affected the sector in any meaningful way yet. So um, one doesn't want to kind of kill the party too early, I suppose. Um, and that's, but I think that's that's what investors in the sector need to be aware of. You know by all means continue to celebrate your stock picking success in house builders and um, you know, the, the alternative lenders if you've been in that space or you know, some of the um, consumer discretionary names um, uh, Whitbread for example you know, had, had some very good um, results last week um, uh, 
yeah, th those those companies have been doing extremely well, and it looks like they will continue to do well. You know, th again, Next had a very strong third quarter third quarter set of figures. Um, it's hard to get very excited about companies like well, about the, the oil majors or the you know defence names when you've got much much stronger figures coming out of these consumer stocks. And um, some, uh, many of which you've picked in your feature. Right? You've, you've yeah, just talked about yeah, some. Absolutely, um, but uh, but you know the party won't last forever and we, we've we've got to be you know so you know investors should note keep a close eye on things like wage growth the savings ratio things which suggest that you know, which indicate whether the the boom is sustainable or not basically and and in interest rates are another one because one of the things that i mean i think i've got the graph in this feature but um the 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 savings Sorry, the um, the the household debt to income ratio in the UK is much higher than in other countries, and that's because of um, high house prices. So there are assets which are backing those liabilities, um, but it does mean that, and we also we have quite short-term mortgages in this country. So the, the the longest you can fix a mortgage for is about five years, unlike in the US where you can fix it for the lifetime of the mortgage. So that does mean that we're much more exposed to rising interest rates than um, other countries. Um, but in in conclusion, you, you see reasons to be cheerful. But yeah, but I mean, so there are these things to to focus on to worry about. But on balance, it certainly seems like a better idea to stick with the consumer stocks than to um, to to get involved in some of the other sectors which are exposed to all of these global headwinds that we've been talking about earlier in the show. Um, but people need to. I think I would say there are you know two takeaways. One is you need to watch out for these things like um, debt levels picking up and savings ratio and so forth and wage growth um, that, that might indicate the cycle is turning. And, and second, um, it it's probably a good idea to have some high quality uh, exporters in your portfolio as a hedge against a sudden collapse in the sterling and it all going hor horribly wrong because Obviously, it, it's just very hard to see what might change when you haven't got to that point, that inflection mm -hmm. point yet. And as as a, you know, just a hedge is never a bad thing. And definitely not. And I suppose just turning to the results section, there's not been very much uh, this week. It's been a quieter week for results, but we have had uh, the bigger news. I suppose Debenhams chief executive is going to leave. Uh, talking about consumer stocks, uh, mm. it's going to be leaving the business um, next year, and that seemed to be a reasonably decent. Uh, set of numbers that met uh, analysts' expectations. There, you think mm. that's kind of playing on some of the things you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it w it's, it's it's not a standout. Um, I mean, the retail, as I've also talked about in the feature, the retailers ironically aren't the best way to play this consumer recovery. They're the most obvious way in a way, but because of the changes to the sector and yeah, the move the to online, the, the e-commerce and stuff, it just it's kept a lot of the old guard have been caught really off guard um, <laughs> by by the changes and so uh, yeah retail is a bit of a mixed bag um however we did actually upgrade um debenhams to a speculative buy because they've got good yield four percent yield and um and the stock's cheap on 11 times forward earnings and obviously it is it is um exposed to this this theme um you know it, it hasn't been one of the obvious beneficiaries of the shift to e-commerce shall we say <laughs> <laughs> um they they've got very inefficient store estate um, but they, it looks like they are sort of in the early stages of a turnaround fascinating uh, elsewhere on the issue this week 
Uh, we've got Chris Dillo talking about the disease of rising house prices and how unproductive it is for uh, the nation to be pouring its money into housing. Bearball column this week looks at um, Brexit and why it would be bad for IC readers as it would hit house prices in London and the South East. Marv Robinson's looked at commodities, especially how falling Chinese demand is hitting uh, Dr Copper. All that and more. £4.50 and all good news agents. Thank you very much. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.